Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to New Books in German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. I'm Michael O'Sullivan of Marist College, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. Today, we are really lucky to have Dr. Molly, uh, Molly Loberg as a guest. She's Professor of History at California Polytechnic State University. Today, we'll discuss her book entitled The Struggle for the Streets of Berlin, Politics, Consumption, and Urban Space, 1914 to 1945. This book appeared with Cambridge University Press in 2018, and it was released in softcover in 2020, making it a very affordable purchase to add to your personal library. The book is the winner of the Hans Rosenberg Book Prize for 2018, and it makes a major contribution in the field of German history, and it should be used in courses and research projects for years to come. And before we get started today, I know that we are... um, you know, kind of in this difficult moment of the pandemic. And I know it's been a really tough summer for um, people who work in higher ed. And I know that uh, higher education professionals make up a significant portion of those who listen to these podcasts. So all of us here at New Books would just like to um, give our thoughts out to those who have uh, had a hard time in the pandemic. Uh, and I know a lot of people at universities have been uh, losing their jobs. And so uh, our hearts are with you. So Hello, Molly. Welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me, Michael. And I thank you for taking the time under these difficult circumstances to do this. Yeah, absolutely. And I hope uh, I hope a podcast like today gives people uh, a break from all the difficult things that are going on. And I know for me, it was a great break to be able to read a good book, uh, step back from all the online modules and uh, stressful, anxiety-ridden reading of the Chronicle for Higher Ed uh, to <laughs> kind of do what we all... Uh, went into this field to do, and that is to read books like this one. So um, I appreciate the book and I appreciate you coming on today. So um, to start, Molly, uh, I was wondering if you could discuss uh, a little bit uh, about how you got into the field of German studies. Uh, This is a traditional first question on the New Books Network, and just share a little bit of your professional biography with the audience. Sure. Um, So I became interested in Germany in high school. Uh, German was one of the three foreign languages that the school offered. Um, And the advantage of German was that there was also a summer exchange program. So that's actually when I went to Berlin for the first time when I was 17. And I got lost, literally. Uh, And this was a very formative experience. And basically what happened is... I got separated from my tour group uh, at Checkpoint Charlie, and it was because I was negotiating with a souvenir seller, (laughs) Um, so relevant for the book. Uh, It was 1993, and I basically had to find my way to the hostel, and I did not know the name of the hostel because, you know, as a teenager, and so it's this tremendous adventure across the city trying to find my way. Um, and when I eventually made it and got reunited with my tour group, I basically set out that same evening again, got lost again and ended up 
um, at the love parade <laughs> completely <laughs> by chance. Um, and this was when it was still on Kudam. It was still very new. Uh, so really after that point, my, I got a reputation and my classmates sort of started following me around, lurking behind me to see when I was going to disappear so that we could kind of all go get lost uh, together. And so getting lost in a city was a really formative uh, experience for me. But it's, it's probably also the reason why I have not taken any students on a study abroad program <laughs> yet, <laughs> my poor teacher. Um, so for undergrad, I went to Pacific Lutheran University and initially, I did not have a major, but then my sophomore year, I took a Holocaust history class, and my professor for that was Christopher Browning. Um, and that was as amazing of an experience, um, just how you would imagine it would be. And this was just a couple years after he published Ordinary Men. So I had this sense that historical debate mattered. Um, historical research mattered. Um, I went back to Berlin for a semester abroad and I still kept getting lost there most of the time. So when I, when I applied for a Fulbright after, uh, after graduating, I chose Freiburg and just basically had the quintessential German college student experience. It was, it was a lot of fun. Um, for my PhD, I went to Princeton and I worked with Andy Robenbach and Harold James uh, and Dan Rogers, uh, that was my committee. And they just provided this wonderful blend of expertise, cultural history, economic history, transatlantic history. Uh, and then during this time, I did a Humboldt fellowship that took me back to Berlin and Karen Hageman was my supervisor then. Um, and I would say this last experience or the sort of doctoral experience uh, was a moment when I didn't really feel nearly as lost in the city and a good reason for that was just the other doctoral students who were there at the time, who I met just by chance. Um, so Michelle Moyd was there, Monica Black, Matze Zierenberg, Christian Gerschel. And I would just say it, it really matters who you take breaks with, <laughs> you know, who, you, who you drink that terrible automatic coffee with uh, in the archives um, and the conversations that you have. Um, and I would just say, I think we all feel nostalgic right now about uh, those research years, that research time. Um, and I, I even find myself missing automatic coffee, <laughs> but I think it's just the people that I'm missing. Yeah. Um... You've had you have, you've really had some incredible people, um, you know, in your in your professional life, and the the Chapel Hill connections, which yeah. is where I went to graduate school, are are uh, <laughs> overwhelming. But um, thinking of what you just said, uh, I remember uh, Chris Browning told me before I left for my dissertation research, um, I was very stressed about it, and um, he was telling me um, that you shouldn't be stressed because this is going to be one of the best opportunities of your career. You know, you're, yeah. if you go out and get a job, you're not, you're not going to have many opportunities where you have a full year to go abroad and do research and do it's some so of the true. things that you just described. Mm -hmm. um, so I certainly feel some, some nostalgia there as well. Um, and you, and you really had some, some great luck with the people that you connected with too. Mm -hmm. So you've already in part answered this question. 
um, my next question, but I, I, I might ask you to build on it a little bit. And that is, I'd like to hear the intellectual origin story of this particular project. Mm-hmm. And um, it's interesting where you started, right? You kind of started out on the streets of Berlin, right? When you first went to Berlin as a 17 year old, which sounds both both uh, frightening and exhilarating at the same mm-hmm. time. And I was just thinking about the the way in which phone and communication access was so much more complicated in those days than it is now where you just could text yes uh, i had no cell phone yes yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um but uh but anyway um yeah i'd just be curious to know how you came up with this project and uh a little bit more about the process of kind of discovering this as the thing that you wanted to write about Sure. So, um, so I tell my students uh, when they are picking a topic for their senior thesis uh, that they should really pick something that matters to them because they have to live with it for a semester, um, and they also may be living with it a lot longer than that. <laughs> um, <laughs> and I, I actually can trace this book back to my senior thesis, at least the seeds of it, because. Uh, I started coming up with some of my ideas, at least for the topic then, but then it's really the sources that I've encountered along the way that have challenged me to think about completely different questions. Um, So just really briefly, my senior thesis was about the image of consumer, uh, the consumer in German advertising from about 1918 to the 1930s. And I was following this sort of development of advertising from these very small, dense, text-heavy ads to the lush advertising that you see uh, at the end of the period. Um, And in terms of methodology, I was really drawing on their U.S. historiography because, you know, it was the 1990s and not a lot of people who were researching German history were very focused on consumption yet. It's become a bigger topic since then. Um, But there was a pretty abundant, there's pretty significant research in the topic from the U.S. perspective. Um, and so the questions really came out of a moment of greater s- sort of a stability and, and prosperity. If you think about this is after the end of the Cold War and it's pre 9-11. And so a lot of the historical questions were about how do we how did we get to a stable relatively abundant society in the United States, you know, and really thinking about consumerism as an important part of that. So I was going to trace the rise of consumer culture in Germany, and I was going to look at sites like advertising, but also department stores and boulevards and dance halls and movie palaces. So all this capitalist abundance. And then I had these two research moments um, two sources that just completely changed my perspective and the project. Um, and the first one was uh, in the municipal archives in Berlin and, you know, sort of just doing a little more nostalgia here. You know, back then there were, I was in the, you know, in the reference room and there they only had two computers and no one ever touched the computers because there was just nothing on them. There was nothing worth using. Um, and instead there were all those finding aids um, that lined the walls, those catalog books. And my research process was just really loose. I would just pull <laughs> these finding aids down one by one from the shelves and flip through and see if anything pertained to consumerism. And I eventually hit this police collection and a file entitled Measures to Combat Looting. And 
it was just my I, my heart started to race at that moment because I, I had that sense of discovery. Um, and when I looked at the reports, there were these descriptions of looting and these young men who are smashing display windows and grabbing things off shelves. And it completely turned ideas of consumer culture uh, on their head for me because this is this is desire, but it's expressed as violence uh, and desperation. And then the other moment, I was in the uh, special collections on uh, the, at the Staatsbibliothek on Unter den Linden, and I was looking at these advertising journals from the 20s and beautiful jazz age uh, pictures, the things I had I'd used for my senior thesis. Um, and it was, you know, the wind was howling outside. It was January in Berlin. It's kind of brutal weather. And I was feeling really cozy looking at all these images. And then I saw this complaint letter that was right next to a picture of how these images actually looked on the street. And they were an absolute mess. They were pasted on top of each other. They were battered. It looked like the rain from outside was hitting them and they were battered. And this basically, again, changed how I thought about advertising and election posters because what I was seeing was so different from how I had seen these images before. Or even if you think about a campaign poster and how it appears in a history book in this pristine condition, but that's not how they actually looked in the street. That's not how people uh, would have encountered them. Um, and so basically every campaign poster and advertisement flashed through my mind. And I realized I'd never really thought of them this way, surrounded by an urban world. Um, and yeah, and that moment really changed the way that I've visualized posters ever since. And uh, I really, you know, I think that uh, scholars like you who um, are able to look at um, visuals from the past in such a sophisticated way, I feel like it always puts people like me to shame. You know, a lot of us will take photos and they seem like they're um, kind of the window dressing on the book, right? Mm -hmm. Like you write the book and then you have the photos at the end, you know, to make it a little more interesting. And I really, I really appreciate books like yours that make me think of these images in new ways, these things we use in the classroom sometimes, right? You know, you'll put up the, the political campaign poster, right? And have your students analyze it. But when you're analyzing it in a vacuum like that, as you, as you point out, um, you don't really see the full picture. So I, uh, I appreciated that about the book as well as your kind of aha stories from research. So, um, at this point, I thought maybe we could uh, jump into uh, the content of the book itself, and we can start by talking about the the introduction. And it's uh, you really um, lay things out very clearly. And I was especially interested in how you uh, discuss the intersection of two main areas of focus in the book, and that is the commercial and the political arenas uh, play such a big role in the argument you make here. So I was wondering if you could share with our audience uh, why looking at the streets allows us to see this collision, the collision between the commercial and the political in such an original way. Um, so what I was aiming for is bringing together two approaches to the study of interwar Germany. Uh, on the one hand, the advent of consumer culture, and on the other, the collapse of liberal political authority and the rise of Nazism. 
And these are often treated as separate stories um, in historiography. And I try to bring them together through urban space, these spaces that they shared. And I argue that city streets were the most important mass media of the era. Uh, and that political and commercial spaces of the city were not separate, but intertwined. They shared a common geography. So just to make that a little less abstract, um, for example, at Potsdamer Platz, which is one of the busiest intersections uh, in Berlin, you had in 1932, hovering over this intersection, a billboard of a Hitler ad, so a campaign image, and this would be right next to a toothpaste advertisement, promising whiter teeth. <laughs> um, and so I argue that by bringing together political and commercial narratives in the street, you get to see both in new ways. So with regards to consumption, it shifts the emphasis in the study of consumption from innovation and abundance to want and crisis. So thinking that desire, choice, the free market, these are not necessarily absolute principles of consumer capitalism. And instead saying that discontent, hostility, violence, scarcity, these are also essential parts of the story. Um, this approach also changes, I would say, the political story. As I've mentioned before, we have to view political campaigns and actions, not in isolation, but surrounded by the urban world. And this actually explains a lot. It helps to explain why the methods of communication were changing so much in the period and also how the public was understanding and receiving these messages because political tactics evolved so rapidly in the Weimar era. And I, I'm making the argument is because the urban environment compels them to both learn and compete. So political parties are borrowing techniques from commercial advertisers like the sandwich board or the motorcade. And they learn these techniques being out in the street. And this is true even in the Nazi era. If you think about the boycott in 1933, they're using sandwich boards, motorcades, these techniques that they didn't invent. And, um, and they're using the way that people move and look in the city. And this was, ex this was um, established by commerce. So just to go back to the Weimar era, political parties are competing for public attention, not just against each other, but also against commercial advertisers and all of the other distractions of the city. Um, and this competition forces innovation, bolder imagery, shriller text, and on top of this, the saturation of public space with commercial advertising and political campaigns has consequences because there is a composite effect. Um, these images and text, as they are viewed all together in the streetscape, means that they're not broadcasting the image of any one company or any one party, uh, but they're really broadcasting the fractures of a society. Excellent. Um, and now that you've given us that uh, good good summary of some of the main contributions here, I thought we could uh, look at a few of the chapters in the book. And um, as we, uh, or I guess in the opening chapter, you really kind of get at 
what the feel of the streets is immediately after World War I. And um, part of what I liked about this chapter was how you um, discussed some of the tension there uh, between you know, the, the expectations that some people had for the streets after the war and how they weren't always fulfilled. And so you talk about how, for example, avant-garde artists might have uh, thought about what, what should happen with public space in the streets after the war. But then you also look at, for example, you refer to as, quote, rogue pasters. But also you look at it from the perspective of municipal authorities and how they wanted to harness uh, the value of the space on the streets uh, for themselves to a certain degree. So uh, I guess what I'm asking you is, could you talk about what some of the expectations were for what uh, pe- you know some people had for public space after World War I and how, those, how and why those expectations weren't always fulfilled? Yeah, so the first chapter begins with Berliners learning that the war has ended and a republic has been declared. And they learn this from the posters and the notices that are hung up in public space. That's really one of the critical media for conveying uh, this news. And just as, as a kind of aside, I, I like to point out here, it's, it's always a really interesting and important question uh, for historians to deal with. And that is, how do people know that a major uh, a major historical event has happened or a, or a turning point? Um, and I think about the Kennedy assassination as an example of this, or 9-11. Um, and in Berlin, this, this, um, this world historical news is being shared through public space. And I would say that even more the, than the content of any one poster, um, it's really the fact that the messages are piling up so quickly that these layers of paper and paste are forming. That's what drives home the sense of revolutionary change, because there had been so many restrictions before the war on who could post in public space and what they could post and where and how. And now there are all these voices. And of course, the banning of censorship in November 1918 is really important for this uh, development. And Berliners have various reactions to what they're seeing, to this space that suddenly seems much more democratic, but also very messy, <laughs> literally very messy. Um, and some are really excited by this because they have a sudden sense that public space belongs to them now. It's been democratized, or democratized and they perceive opportunities and power in public space and they're going to claim it. Um, and one example that you mentioned is these expressionist artists and they see themselves as a revolutionary voice that can guide the working classes into this new era. Um, and so they get initially government contracts to create something akin to public service messages. Um, and then eventually they're very disappointed to find out, and also uh, the government officials who, who gave these contracts, to find out that this art, this expressionist art is not nearly as popular with the masses as they expected it would be. Um, there's also entrepreneurs who are longing for a return to normalcy. Uh, they're, t- they're done with wartime restrictions. And so they start to advertise all types of amusement. So they see this as, as uh, the economy returning. And then you have political parties who see all these new possibilities for campaigning. 
Um, so there's a lot of excitement, but there's also other reactions too. And there are those who are really repulsed by all of this. So for example, property owners who fume about vandals, or as they call them, these rogue pasters who put up posters on their shop windows and buildings at night. Um, so they feel like it's damaging their property. And then you also have government authorities who are really worried about all of these advertisements, particularly all the dance advertisements, because they're worried that allies looking at the city of Berlin will see all this and see this kind of party atmosphere. And as a result, they're going to jack, they think the jack, allies will jack up the cost of reparations because it doesn't look like Germans are suffering enough and they're trying to convey this image. Um, and then there's also just these, um, these concerned citizens who dislike disorderly public space, the streetscape. And there's just so many voices out there and so much uh, a demand for attention and they don't like the appearance of that. And I think this is interesting to think about because you know we live in a period where we're so inundated with media um, that it's hard to imagine a time when this was less normal, when this could be mm -hmm. a shock, and especially for those who are comfortable with how the street looked before. So this is just a moment when Germans are renegotiating the rules. Freedom of expression has been declared, but they haven't figured out yet who, you know, this question of who, how, where. And then you have the problem that space is a limited resource and demand is really high. Um, so what's interesting is that the municipal government comes up with a solution to regulate demand and is essentially the market solution that they're going to put up posting columns and billboards and they're going to rent these spaces out um, and they're going to clamp down on all the other sort of rogue pasting going on and they're going to rent the spaces to advertisers and political parties. Um, so this, of course, is a really familiar revenue strategy to us today for cities or ballparks. They do this. Um, but before doing the book, I had never really thought about this, um, especially when this practice starts and why the practice starts. Um, and of course, they need revenue at the time. There's so many de demands on, on the city government um, in, this, in this new era. But of course, this regulated expression really falls short of what some people had truly hoped for, which was a transformed public space, something more democratic, more revolutionary. So um, this is a point in the podcast where I um, ask my uh, guests to indulge me a little bit. I always <laughs> love uh, the little uh, details of a book that um, really spoke to me. And I think one of the things that you do throughout the book is that you use these uh, really evocative descriptions to kind of put the reader right on the street of Berlin in the 20s, you know. Um, and you already did that a little bit, right? Where you were giving us that image of, um, you know, the things being pasted over again and again and, and, and things like that. But I want to read um, a short passage from the book. Um, this comes from the second chapter of the book, and it's kind of a description of the street trade in the 20s. 
Um, and I, I just want to read a few sentences for our audience to listen to, Molly. But then I was hoping when I'm done reading that you would uh, comment a little on what it's like as a scholar to be able to kind of take historical sources and use them to create uh, such a vivid, um, thick description, I guess, as we say. So uh, here's the quote. Uh, Given the scarcity of other meats, vendors offered freshly warmed horse meat sausages from makeshift mobile stoves. Veterans in uniform sold cigarettes and chocolate near rail stations and streetcar stops. Tables and carts filled uh, niches, recesses, and doorways. Ice cream vendors set up shop in the courtyards of working class districts. Hawkers caught the attention of passerby with sight and sound. Drum players and muzzled dancing bears lured children to outdoor carnivals. Out-of-work violinists and singers performed for tips. Endless renditions of Ave Maria from ever-present organ grinders forced office workers in the government district to close their windows in the heat of the summer. Hawkers gave elaborate sales pitches for novelty gadgets. So Molly, um, this reminds me of, you know, when you described, you know, getting lost and finding the love parade in Berlin, you know, you might've gone and wrote a real graphic description of that for like, you know, your student newspaper or something, but how as a historian, are you able to go back and kind of place yourself on the streets in the, of Berlin in the twenties and come up with such detail? Um, well, first of all, I am so pleased that that paragraph stood out to you because it was really hard to write. Um, (laughs) And I had to pull it together from so many different sources, all kinds of urban ephemera, uh, complaint letters to municipal authorities, letters to the editor and trade journals, um, human interest stories in newspapers, novels, traffic reports, and and photographs. Um, And it's interesting that you connected that experience of getting lost in the city um, to this this moment in the book, because I also came to that last piece in terms of photographs by this chance encounter that happens when you're researching a city, sometimes a city like Berlin, where you see something in the city and it sends you on a path. And I just happened to be on a very short research trip back to Berlin after most of the research was already done. And I was in the subway and I saw this beautiful black and white photograph of a street hawker um, from the 1920s. And it was an advertisement for an exhibition that was happening at the German Historical Museum of the photograph of Willy Romer, who, um, who I had never heard of before. But once I went to the exhibit and I saw the photographs, I actually recognized some of the photographs as unattributed photographs that I had seen in the archives. And he took thousands of pictures of Berlin street life um, uh, in the 1920s and the 1930s. Um, And and I use his work and other photographers' works for other parts of the book. But again, it's just sort of happened by chance that I I ran into that particular particular exhibit and it just happened to be going on at that time. Um, In terms of putting the paragraphs together, so the writing of it. Um, and also this is what I would do for other parts of the book. Um, I, you know, I would gather all these little clues and sometimes they were just a half a sentence that I saw in some, uh, some report. And I would write them down on post-it notes 
And then I would take these post-it notes and I would hang them up all over my Berlin apartment um, and, you know, sort of have this, this sort of view of the city and then try and shape this from there into paragraphs. Um, I would basically storyboard it, storyboard the chapter. Um, And so that, that particular paragraph is really emblematic of the research and writing process. Um, And it's wonderful to think that uh, riding the Berlin subway is, you know, uh, part of the research process too. It absolutely is. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about chapter two of the book, um, which that passage came from, but mm-hmm. the chapter as a whole, uh, you know, really struck me and it, it focuses on uh, the, the Scheunenviertel of, of Berlin in the early 1920s. And I thought this, so this chapter, it struck me because I thought, that it would appeal to a lot of academic historians like myself um, because it focuses on an anti-Semitic episode that, you know, is probably overlooked by most of us who, who teach German history, you know, not one that we would talk about that much. So I'll ask you to talk about that anti-Semitic episode. Mm-hmm. But for the lay reader, it also seems like there are so many issues with clear connections to the present and in, in current events and, you know, for example, you talk about policing techniques, right? Mm-hmm. Very much in the news. Yes. Um, disruptive economic practices. Uh, mm-hmm. We're living in this moment of unbelievable economic disruption. Um, and perhaps most importantly, uh, xenophobia and anti-Semitism, right? And we're living mm-hmm. in this age of resurgent xenophobia and anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you could reflect on the chapter from both perspectives, the kind of academic contribution of shedding light on an event that we as academics don't may not give the attention that, that it deserves, but also um, how the chapter kind of pulls all of these themes together that are so relevant uh, in the 21st century, as well as in in the 1920s in Berlin? Yeah, so this is a great question, uh, because I think it implies one of the challenges that we have when we are teaching and writing about the interwar period. And that is you have these periods of such horrific and unfathomable violence on either side of it, that's really possible to overlook what happens in between. So what in between the world wars. And there are these moments that are incredibly revealing. And I discussed the Schoen and Fyodor riot in, of 1923 in the book as one of, these, one of these moments that reveals so much. And I try and show how the riot links together economic dislocations and people, how they cope with this um, after the First World War, the situation of post-war refugees, evolving practices of policing the geography of Berlin, and also tie all this in with the longer history of anti-Semitism. So I'm pulling together all these different historical threads. And so that makes it a difficult question to answer um, (laughs) because there's so much to talk about. But then there's this whole other level of challenge, as you say, because there are elements of this story that resonate strongly with the present and parts of the story that feel familiar, um, even though this happened about 100 years ago. Um, So just so what happened? Uh, Just briefly, the Scheunenfjordel riot happens in 1923. It begins with an attack on a street hawker who is described in reports as an Eastern European Jew. 
Uh, the riot then engulfs the whole district. And this is a district, the Shoin and Fiotel, that has a reputation of being a poor district, an, Im- an immigrant district, and also a, a, a radically left district. And after the riots over, uh, two people were dead, 40 people at least were injured. There had been massive property theft, damage, arson, hundreds were taken into custody. And even some police officers faced criminal charges after after the riot. And so the next question is, how did this happen? And I would emphasize that this was actually a question of great debate at the time. Uh, Maybe this riot doesn't shock us because we see it through the lens of what's going to happen in Germany uh, about a decade later, Um, and, and of course the Holocaust. But at the time, Berliners were really wrestling with this question. You know, how does this happen in our liberal and cosmopolitan city? They see pogroms as something that are, is either part of the past or something that happens in Eastern Europe and not, you know, not part of the West. Um, and also the police response here is important because the police response to the riot was slow Um because some of the off and and some officers are later found guilty of assaulting the very victims of the riot that they had taken into so-called protective custody, and the, that the police are also found to have played a role in this or of not to not have done enough, um, leads to this significant soul-searching debate in the press on this question. You know, is this just a case of a few bad apples? Or is anti-Semitism something that is endemic in the police force? And there's different answers that are, are put forward for this. On the one hand, we can see that police rely on anti-Semitic tropes in the reports of the incident. And as I said, those officers are found guilty of, of physically abusing the people, uh, Jews that they had taken into protective custody. But on the other hand, some newspapers dispute that this could be possible, that anti-Semitism can't be systemic in the police force because we've had this revolution in 1918 and reforms have followed. And the chief of police is a social Democrat now uh, as compared to, you know, a a more authoritarian pre-war period um, that favored monarchy and order in a different way. And also they'll point out that the deputy chief of police is Bernard Weiss, who is one of the highest ranking Jewish Germans in government. Um, And in the coming decade, he's going to be constantly clashing with uh, Joseph Goebbels. Also, another important part of this is that the fact that this is an issue at all, that they're having this debate in the press about systemic anti-Semitism and xenophobia certainly would suggest that this is not the same kind of moment um, as we'll see in in the Nazi era. So this it distinguishes that they're having the debate distinguishes this um, from the Nazi era. Uh, in my discussion, I I try to take the discussion beyond sort of figuring out intrinsic anti-Semitism and think more about the effect of police practices. How this affects how police respond to the riot and also uh, attitudes towards the dis- district then and in the future. So how police actions are actually shaping uh, attitudes. And I pay attention to how police, specific police practices create an antagonistic relationship with this district, 
which becomes increasingly identified as a problem district. And just as, as one example of this, the regulations on street hawking, which we are, so we're just talking about street hawking, are actually harsher in the Schoen and Feardal than they are in other parts of Berlin. And so even though hawking, street hawking was widespread phenomenon practiced by many people after the war, from veterans to academics who are struggling to find work, and this is also a common profession for refugees and migrants because it doesn't require much by way of capital or language skills, and it works for people who are in transit. But this also means that the people who are refugees from Eastern Europe or are immigrants to Germany, they're very visible and they're vulnerable in the street as they're doing this. And from a policing standpoint, regulating street hawker becomes a way to target unwanted immigrants. There are thousands, tens of thousands of refugees in Berlin after the war. And most state officials don't think it's possible to deport all of them. Uh, and, and they also are, are concerned about what would happen to them if you sort of deported them back to the places that they had fled. But they don't like the public impression that police are allowing this kind of trade and commerce to flourish or not. they're not doing anything. And so they start targeting so-called burdensome foreigners and street traders fall into this category. And so police are regularly raiding the Scheunen Feudal District before the riot and after. And what I would point out here is, of course, a refugee crisis is not a simple matter to solve, something that can't be easily solved with policing. It has geopolitical origins. And so the police, they don't solve it. They can't solve it. And they're increasingly frustrated and at the same time, the very fact that these regular raids are happening reinforces this image that the Scheunenfjordal is a problem district and that these are problem people, um, even though the rules are actually just different uh, in that area. And this affects how the police think about the area. And it also affects some of the public responses after the riot, because after the riot, the political right they don't think that their city has been defiled by a pogrom. Instead, they start calling for more deportations. And when the Nazis come to power, this area of the Scheunenfjotel uh, is going to be one of the first districts that they raid um, and start uh, doing these sort of roundups, at least cleanups of the city. And so I would say that there are certainly some elements of this that sound, sound familiar, maybe some elements that sound less so, but I would say it's important to note that when I began researching this, I, I did this. A, I began researching this a long time ago, uh, with a different set of questions in mind, <laughs> and and I published this two years ago. Um, and so the questions did not actually come from our current news. This is where the primary sources took the story, and as I think it's actually been a really alarming uh, part of sort of. Um, it's been alarming after the book has been published to see or to have that greater sense of recognition um, when things start to feel more familiar in the present to things that I have, I've read about before. And I would say just to circle back to your question, I would hope that professors and students could use this and other parts of the book to have meaningful com uh, comparative conversations about you know, and really wrestle with this question why does this feel so familiar to us? Yeah, that's that's actually a very good way good good way to answer the question. 
And um, I thought I'd bring up something, an, another theme of the book uh, that, that I'd let you talk about to the audience. Um, you, use, you discuss this term, uh, latent civil war, um, through some of the middle parts of the book. And, the, and you talk about how this notion of a latent civil war was you know, part of the rhetoric, I guess, about the commercial sphere during the, the Weimar Republic. So uh, could you just expand uh, on this as one of the threads that you kind of follow through the book? Sure. So um, when historians use that term latent civil war, what they're usually talking about is street fighting between communists and Nazis uh, toward the end of the Weimar Republic. That's that's usually their reference. Um, but for my book, I would say that you could think about the, that term in two new ways. Um, first of all, I talk a lot about the hostilities that divided and even permeated the commercial sphere. And I think this is important because a lot of times uh, the history of consumer culture treats advertisers or retailers as a unified group or homogenous group. And I see a lot of division and, and rivalry between different types of retailers, so shopkeepers and street hawkers, or the same type of retailer, but at different scale. So the corner store versus the department store. And this is important because this hostility is something that will, of, of course, affect the politics of the Weimar Republic, but also it's something that the Nazis will draw power from and they will unleash, unleash it in the future, but also have to try and, and struggle to uh, contain it. And so um, there's this letter from a shopkeeper in the Nazi era that I discuss in the book that clearly shows that she knows everything about her neighbor's business. <laughs> she knows <laughs> she knows who comes in and when they come in and she watches what they carry out of the store. And it's clear she is watching them through the display window. And she is all too happy to point out to the authorities that her neighbor is Jewish and that she thinks that she's observing it, these uh, unfair business practices. Um, so there's this there's these commercial hostilities that are important. Um, but then the term latent civil war is also the way that retailers and advertisers uh, in the late Weimar Republic uh, describe the encroachment of politics, uh, clashes like street fighting onto the commercial sphere. The fact that these things are spilling over into their spaces and this is actually happening. And one of the things that uh, the surprising reasons I found this to be happening is it has to do with the way that politics and protest were policed. That's actually a significant reason for this, because on the one hand, Germans had the right to demonstrate this was guaranteed by the Weimar Constitution. But they think that's going to be really a short-term thing. They think that the, the fact that a republic's been established, that's going to resolve a lot of these political problems from the pre-war period. But when protests keep going and the level exceeds what they initially expected, the authorities start to use, to draw upon these emergency measures, things like Article 48, um, so famously used by Hitler later on, which allows them to suspend civil liberties, you know, for a period of time. 
But they also draw on these more subtle measures like traffic regulations um, and also restrict the place where people can demonstrate. So already in 1920, authorities banned protest from the government district around Unterdain Linden. They call this the no protest zone, um, mm. the Ban Maile. And then they also sort of... Uh, what we see happening when this when they establish this no protest zone is that this doesn't, of course, end protest, but it shifts their location and it shifts how it's done. So, for example, rather than registering with the police in advance, demonstrators will start doing this thing called a flash demonstration where they suddenly appear in a district and then they just dis- they disperse before the police arrive um, or they start to move demonstrations into shopping districts. Um, and uh, initially the police allow for it because, you know, they, they're interesting. They're sometimes more liberal than we would expect them to be in terms of regulating protest. Um, but of course this has consequences that they're, that they're sort of moving into these shopping districts. Uh, it leads to traffic jams, but also uh, it, it leads to vandalism and looting as well. So by 1932, you actually have shopkeepers who are asking for a no protest zone around shopping districts. They want to be protected from latent civil war, as they call it. And they see this politicization of daily life as something that's dangerous for commerce. Right. And my next question builds on a lot of things you were just talking about, and it reaches us back to earlier in the interview where you talked about one of your real, uh, you know, big moments in the archive was when you found some files about looting and looting during the great depression plays a big role in, in your book. And you even uh, describe it as um, this looting as creating a moment where any line that might've separated politics um, from the commercial public space, uh, the, disappeared, right? The line disappears. So uh, I wanted to make sure you had the opportunity to talk about uh, how looting caused public space in Berlin to become more political. And I think it's just flows directly from a lot of the things you were just talking about too. Yeah, so by this point, I mean, public space is already plenty political uh, in the sense of partisan street clashes. So in terms of uh it feeling more political, I would say that's more about the politicization of spaces and groups that were previously perceived as apolitical. That's what's really mattering here. So for example, that chain grocery stores are suddenly targets that that they're caught up in this latent civil war. And I think it's also that there's a sense that the government has failed to uphold the line between commerce and politics. So it's a general questioning of government. Uh, So we can see this attempt to to rectify this in the interpretation of the crime that the police are putting forward. They are trying to uphold an interpretation of of, of looting that fits it into neat boxes. So there's this debate in the police force Looting, is this a is this motivated by politics or is this motivated by criminal opportunism? So a financial a, a goal there. Um, 
And one of the reasons why this is a subject of debate at all is because and uh, few looters were ever caught. So theories of the crime really depend on profiling who's, who's doing these. Um, and most of the looters, they're described as groups of young men between the ages of 18 and 25. And so police are trying to figure out, okay, based on the perpetrator, what does this tell us about motive? And what's interesting is that most in the police department saw this, saw looting as either political theater by uh, paramilitary groups, um, or they see it as criminal opportunism by gangs. And very few in the police department saw the depression at, or genuine need as a direct factor, or even see it as a connected factor. And I think one of the reasons that they do this is that to admit that would be to admit a problem that far exceeds police capacities to do anything about it. Um, and, and they really struggle uh, to, to uh, respond to looting. The lootings continue. And that has a whole different uh, political effect because it really, um, I think, highlights the loss of or, or a sense of state failure. Um, looting is something that flourishes when a government either has lost legitimacy or effectiveness or possibly both. And so shopkeepers become really angry at the police because they feel incredibly vulnerable. Uh, their entire commercial model is premised on civil order. And we can see this just in, the, in one of the iconic um, structures of modern consumer culture, the plate glass display window. This is very alluring, but it's also very fragile. So it's completely dependent on civil order to work. And so shopkeepers want the police to invest more resources in preventing looting. Um, they want the protection of individual shops or even an occupation of the streets, an aggressive occupation of the streets. And police initially promised to do this, but too many cases keep happening. There's too many stores in the city, they can't protect them all. And so what they start telling shopkeepers to do is to invest in private security to fire female clerks and hire male ones. The assumption there is that you know, men would, would take a stand against the looters, uh, to install alarms, to put iron bars over the windows and the entrances. But of course, you know, this is something that delegitimizes the police and stately and the state in the, in the eyes of shopkeepers, uh, because if the police can't uphold order in public space, then what, what is their purpose? Um, I should point out that when the Nazis came to power, they actually trumpet the fact that the number of looting cases falls dramatically under the regime. But, and this is a critical, uh, critical but, display windows, of course, aren't safer under the Nazis. Uh, instead, what happens is that the categorization of crime changes when it's perpetrated by state forces or party members. They don't call their window smashing uh, vandalism or looting anymore. So, you know, the Nazis are going to muddle the line between commerce and politics, to be sure. But they perceive that there are dangers um, if disorder, if, if this mix between politics and uh, commerce seems disorderly. Well, and there's so much... Um 
I want to ask you about in the book, but I, I really want to make sure that you have a chance to talk about the era of the Third Reich that you already just began speaking about a little bit. And it really struck me in the latter chapters of the book that um, certainly this is a book about urban space, but it also is a study that contributes significantly to the history of German Jews and to Nazi anti-Semitism. And so you discuss events in the book that are taught regularly by some of the instructors who might be listening. Uh, like you talk about the boycott in April of 1933. Um, you talk about Reichskristallnacht uh, as it occurred in Berlin in 1938. So I just wanted to give you a chance here to um, talk about how your unique perspective in this book um, allows us to understand these well-known elements of German Jewish persecution better. Yeah, so I think that one of the difficulties in teaching or writing about the Holocaust is that the numbers are so staggering and the horror so profound that it can be it can be truly overwhelming to and really hard to grasp. So my book really focuses on the years before deportation and killing and the process of exclusion of Jews from public life, city spaces, and the economy. And to not see these as a prologue to greater horror, but as a tragedy, as tragedies in their own right. And this is, this is really important because these smaller steps towards ex- exclusion and erasure are absolutely devastating to the people who experience them. So I'm trying to capture this incremental escalation. Um, And so there's an example of of this very heartbreaking letter that I found in the archives. And it's from a Jewish street hawker who is injured. He's a veteran too. He was injured first uh, five times in the First World War. He's heavily disabled. And, you know, he loses his permit and his profession uh, when the Nazis come to power. And still, he writes to the Ministry of the Economy for help to see if he that he can't be sort of rescued from this. And he says to them, you know, I did my duty for the nation as a soldier, and I, I hoped to be able to live. I dared for a right to live. And you can just hear his desperation in this moment. And if, if you're not interpreting these moments looking backward from the Holocaust, but as they're unfolding, you, you grasp how... Seriously, uh, smaller measures were at the time. So in June 1938, the Nazis basically weaponized traffic regulations to use them to make life uncomfortable for Jews in Berlin, to try and force them to emigrate. And Goebbels tells the police to think on a daily basis, on their way to work, to think how they can best harass Jews. And one of the things they do is they declare a national traffic week and they give out exorbitant fines uh, and even arrest Jews for doing things like jaywalking. And this is actually understood as such a serious thing at the time that the New York Times reports on it. Um, This is just a few months before Crystal knocked, but of course people don't know this at the time. And this harassment is is horror enough. Um, so 
I would just say we can't become desensitized to these tragedies because the people at the time, they don't know what lies ahead. And the path to the Holocaust begins with exclusion from public life, from urban space, losing economic power, being made invisible. Well, uh, at this point, Molly, we've taken up a tremendous amount of your time. So I'd like to end with a traditional New Books Network question. And so now that you've completed this award-winning book, uh, what are you working on now? Are we able to work on research during the (laughs) pandemic? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I think we're all having to seriously research or reevaluate our research plans. Um, And I'll just, so I'll just tell you about the, the next thing that I hope will be coming out soon. And it's, an essay for an edited volume of the uh, German Historical Institute, and it's about reshaping capitalism in the Weimar Nazi era. Uh, Moritz Fohmer and Pamela Sweat are the editors. And my contribution is investigating this phenomenon of looting more, uh, what this reveals about capitalism. And so when I, I wrote the book, I was really thinking about looting, the act of it, the policing of it, preventative measures. But I came away with these unanswered questions. I particularly wanted to know more about the issue of liability. Um, So who is legally and financially responsible for looting damages? Um, And this was a big matter of debate throughout the 19th century and into the Nazi era. And I would say, of course, even today, because it's a question that has significant consequences. Um, And just historically speaking, the reason why this is such a big question in Germany is because looting fell outside the normal categories of crime, but also insurance. So many insurance companies specifically don't cover this. They compensate for for robbery, but not looting. And so a way to think about this is that hurricane insurance might compensate for wind damage, but not water damage. Hmm. Um, And so... Basically, uh, it fo- the, the essay follows this tumult law that's created after 1850, in the aftermath of the 1848 uh, uh, revolutions, and it's first used to punish communities for riots by making the whole community liable for compensation. The idea that communities will police themselves better if they have to pay higher taxes. But in the decades that follow, all of these different regimes are going to have to grapple with the implications of this law. So the Weimar Republic will have to decide whether to uphold this law when protests are one of the things that found the Republic. And even the Nazis will have trouble extricating themselves from this law um, in the aftermath of Kristallnacht. And not because they they were the perpetrators uh, of this of, of Kristallnacht, but because they claimed that the German crowd was, and therefore that would affect who paid for it, the state paying for it and paying for it uh, through things like taxation. So it's just, it's an, uh, it's an essay that tries to bring together reparations, liability law, private insurance, infrastructures of capitalism. All right, Molly. Well, uh, that sounds uh, sounds like uh, you're continuing to do more great work and uh, um, in an environment where it's hard to get things done, obviously. Mm-hmm. So, And um, thank you so much for giving us your time and for being on the show today, Molly. Thank you so much for the conversation, Michael. So to our listeners, you've been listening to an episode in New Books and German Studies, a channel in the New Books Network of Podcasts. Uh, My name is Michael O'Sullivan, and our guest today was Dr. Molly Loberg. 
we discussed her recent book, The Struggle for the Streets of Berlin, Politics, Consumption, and Urban Space, 1914 to 1945, published with Cambridge University Press in 2018. I hope that all of our listeners are as well as can be expected. Please stay healthy. Thank you for tuning in, and we hope you will continue to listen.